Okay, so we're continuing uh, on our subject of the gospel, the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. And specifically, we've been talking about what the gospel is not. And I thought by way of introduction, and of course we know uh, we took a one-week uh, hiatus from our topic last week because we uh, spent the time last week talking about the different Bible, English Bible versions and how we got our Bible and ended up turning it into a sort of a one-hour uh, primer on, on uh, biblical criticism and textual criticism. So really good stuff, really appreciated the questions and comments last week, and so that one is available uh, at the Not By Works website. And one other thing before we begin, I want to ask for your prayers. I leave bright and early first thing tomorrow morning uh, for Tulsa for the annual Mid-America Prophecy Conference at the Marriott there in Tulsa. And so covet your prayers that the Lord will use uh, my messages and indeed the messages of everyone at the conference, uh, that the gospel will go forth clearly, uh, boldly, and uh, powerfully. And uh, so we'll be back Saturday night late and be here Sunday morning for church. So looking forward to a great weekend. Counting tonight, I'll speak five times in the next four days. So really excited about that. It's been, uh, been a lot worse. There have been times I've spoken seven times in three days. And so I pray that my voice holds out and that it's just a great edifying and fruitful time of ministry. But uh, let's get uh, started with our topic for the night. And I wanted to introduce it before we get into our uh, slides and pick up where we left off by uh, sharing with you an email that I got. And this, someone sent me uh, a quote, uh, and this person was sending it to me favorably, uh, from John Piper. And so I thought I would kind of walk you through this. Now, um, the issue at hand is assurance of salvation. Okay, this person was dialoguing about whether you can have assurance of your salvation. And one of the big uh, criticisms of Reformed theology and Calvinistic teaching, of course, is that uh, it's impossible to have assurance if you must produce good works to prove that you're really saved. And remember, uh, not to get into too many weeds here with Calvinism, but the, the fifth point of Calvinism, the P in their scheme, coming right out of the Synod of Dort, going all the way back 500 years ago, uh, is perseverance. And the Calvinists uh, plainly teach that Unless you persevere in good works, you were never really saved to begin with. Your faith wasn't real, okay? So we've talked a lot about that over the last several weeks, but that being the case, it should naturally and logically follow that you can never really be sure of your salvation, right? Because uh, what if on your deathbed or in the waning weeks and months of your life before you die, you end up uh, getting away from the Lord and living a sinful life and so forth, would that prove that you're not saved? And no less than the likes of R.C. Sproul, of course, who's in heaven now, but when he was still living, a famous Reformed and Calvinist scholar, admitted openly on multiple occasions that he himself could only be 99% sure that he's going to heaven when he dies because his theology dictated that if he were to abandon the faith late in life, it would prove he never was really saved to begin with. So this is a very big issue, and in this particular uh, email, uh, Piper is uh, uh, addressing it. So he begins, dozens of passages in the Bible speak of our final salvation as conditional upon a changed heart and life. Okay, right out of the bat, the first sentence should raise some red flags, don't you think? 
Now, I've quoted Piper extensively. He's also famously written that, there, quote, there can be no doubt that what God will require at final judgment for entrance into heaven is some measure of real, lived-out, visible obedience to God. Uh, so Piper clearly believes that, as he says here, that a changed life is a condition for final salvation. His words, not mine. Then he, answer, he, he raises the, the objection that myself and many others have raised. He says, the question arises then, how can I have the assurance I will persevere in faith and in holiness that is necessary to have eternal life? And he answers his own question. The answer is that assurance is rooted in our election. So there you go. It's a classic example of circular reasoning within Calvinism. They claim that our uh, faith is based on election, our salvation is based on election, and our perseverance is based on election. So they say, how can you know you're saved? Because of your election. How can you know you're elect? Because you had faith. How can you know you had faith? Because you had good works. How can you know you had good works? Because you're elect. And it comes full circle back to election. So it's just, it's a logical fallacy, circular reasoning, yet in their minds they're satisfied that that it's an acceptable theological premise, that you have to have good works to prove that you're saved, you have to have good works to prove that you're elect, and if you're elect, you can be sure of your salvation. The problem is, how can I know I'm elect? Again, they say, well, because you do good works. Well, what if I don't do good works? Well, then you're not elect. So then your works become the determinative factor in whether or not you're saved. So as is, this doesn't answer the objection at all. It simply repeats the same old tired arguments in circular reasoning that Reformed theologians are famous for. So the bottom line is contrary to what Piper says, there are not dozens of passages in the Bible that speak of our final salvation as being conditioned upon a changed life. There are more than 160 passages, on the other hand, that condition our eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone, not a changed life. A changed life is never a condition for getting into heaven. If a changed life were a condition for getting into heaven, we would all be in trouble, number one. And number two, it would beg the question, how much change? Because how many of us in this room are perfect? Raise your hand. I mean, practically speaking, not positionally. Positionally, we're perfect in Christ because we've been adopted into the family of God and His righteousness has been imputed to us. So positionally, sure. But practically speaking, anybody perfect? No, of course not. So that means that at the very most, by your own admission, everyone in this room is 99% uh, perfect. And unfortunately, the requirement for entrance into heaven is 100% is perfection. So uh, we cannot base our eternal salvation or our assurance of salvation upon our works, because otherwise we will be doubting our salvation every day. My assurance is not based on the subjective uh, evidence of works or a changed life, as Piper puts it. My assurance of salvation is based on the empirical promise of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who said plainly, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. He didn't say you shall never perish as long as you have a changed life. He didn't say you shall never perish as long as you evidence good works in your life. He didn't say you shall never perish as long as you don't depart from me at some point during your life. He said, you have a present possession right now. I'm giving it to you at this moment that you believe, and that is eternal life, a present possession. So um, uh, sorry to disappoint the person who sent me the email. 
uh, but uh, Piper really only creates more problems with that statement in trying to solve the conundrum of how can you have assurance if you must evidence a changed life to prove that you're saved. He only creates more problems for himself. All right, so tonight uh, I promise that we want to get to um, Romans 10 because we've been kind of dancing around that for the last three weeks. And um, so hopefully we will spend most of our time uh, there. But we're talking about 10 false understandings of the gospel. The basic foundational passages that are undergirding this whole study are Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Or Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Our justification is completely, absolutely, and totally free. We're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace, if it's not free, is not grace. And if it's grace, it's got to be free. Uh, the book of Revelation reminds us, whoever desires, let him take the water of life uh, freely. We've talked a lot about how uh, there are two aspects, two tenses, you might say, past and present, to our, to our justification and sanctification process. As I said a moment ago, positionally, the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ and believe the gospel, we are declared once and for all righteous. Done deal, never an issue once again. It happens at a moment in time, and it rescues us once and for all from sin's penalty. But over time, as a new babe in Christ, a new, uh, with a new nature and a new uh, child of God, uh, we become closer and closer to Christ. We begin to emulate Christ's likeness in our life. We begin to let that new nature within us flow out. It's not guaranteed, contrary to what Reformed theology teaches, because we can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We cannot yield to the Spirit. We cannot walk in the Spirit. So much of the New Testament makes it plain that it is very much possible for a believer to utterly shut out the Holy Spirit. When He convicts us and leads us and guides us and pricks our heart, we are not obligated nor forced to do what He tells us. Uh, that would make us robots if we didn't have the ability to rebel against the Spirit's teaching. Uh, we're not robots. We have free choice. Uh, now, of course, the Calvinists teach that uh, you had no choice to begin with. You were forced to believe the gospel, and because you're forced to believe the gospel, you're forced to obey uh, the Spirit's convicting work in your life, and you're forced to live a godly, holy life. Therefore, if at any point in your life you're not living a godly life, it proves you were never saved to begin with. And, of course, we've talked about how that notion is uh, foreign to Scripture. Uh, you're not forced to believe the gospel, and you're not forced to obey the Spirit's work in your life. The goal is for our practice in life to reflect our position in Christ, but it doesn't always do that. In fact, if it was guaranteed, if our sanctification were guaranteed, then why would there be so many commands in Scripture to live a sanctified life? I mean, it would be silly to command something that you have no choice in the matter anyway, right? But they're commanded precisely because we can choose to live a carnal life. We can choose to rebel against the Spirit's calling in our life. We can choose to not obey God. Uh, the walk of the Christian life is to trust and obey. And sometimes we don't trust and obey God. And, uh, and, and then, of course, we've talked before about God's discipline and how all that comes together. Uh, but sanctification, the progressive sanctification of the believer, and by the way, I know some uh, people that share our passion for the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel uh, are not uh, comfortable using the phrase 
sanctification. I've never quite understood uh, why, but it, but I respect it. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, the vast majority of the time, mature, majority of the time that the word sanctified or sanctification occurs in Scripture, it refers to our progressive, ongoing, daily maturing process. Yet I acknowledge there are a few times when sanctified is used in a positional sense. So if you go back to our uh, two columns here, sometimes sanctification is used as a synonym for justification. And context has to determine meaning. But because most of the time the New Testament uses sanctification to refer to our ongoing uh, practice and becoming more and more Christ-like and following after the Lord, this practical righteousness that we've talked about, uh, that's the way most theologians and scholars have used the term. So you think of the three tenses of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification happens the moment we believe the gospel. Sanctification happens over the course of our Christian life as we yield to the Holy Spirit. Glorification happens when we die and ultimately see the Lord in heaven. Uh, glorification does. So justification rescues us from sin's penalty, sanctification from sin's power, and glorification ultimately from sin's very presence. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to give that little caveat because I know that some people might be watching this video and they've grown up in a teaching that doesn't like to use the term sanctification in that way. And uh, But again, the Bible uses it in that way, so I'm quite comfortable. But I want to uh, point out one key passage that demonstrates that our sanctification, our progressive sanctification, uh, is not guaranteed. If you look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, and I'm sorry I don't have this on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, and we're going to be in Romans 10 in a moment anyway, Romans 8 verse 30, uh, the Bible says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, justified and glorified, we just talked about those. That's past tense salvation, the moment we trusted Christ, and future tense salvation when we get to heaven. But what do you notice that's missing there? It's conspicuous by its absence. Is sanctified. And by the way, both justified and glorified are in the aorist tense, meaning they're as good as done. We have not been glorified yet. If you just look around, you can see that. But yet it's spoken of theologically in the past tense because it's as good as done. The Holy Spirit is our seal until the day of the redemption of our bodies. So glorified and justified are both already done. Sanctified is not listed there. Why? Because our progressive sanctification is not guaranteed. It is possible for a believer to be shipwrecked on the sidelines of life, not walking with the Lord, not, you know, sanctified just means set apart in Christ's likeness. So whenever we sin, we're not being very sanctified, are we? We're not being very Christ-like. So uh, clearly our uh, uh, progressive sanctification is not uh, guaranteed. But, but the goal of the Christian life is that we will be sanctified, that we will become holy as He is holy, that as long as we're topside this earth and awaiting the Lord's return, we will reflect Christ's holiness in our own life. But to think that that when we don't do that, it proves we're not saved, is ludicrous and opens up a huge Pandora's box that makes assurance of salvation utterly impossible. So, so far we've talked about how the gospel is not a commitment uh, and it's not a contract and it's not giving something to the Lord and it's not repenting of your sins. And last time we talked about it, it's not surrendering 
to Jesus as Lord and Master, all five of those things, you could easily say, are an aspect of our sanctification process, not our justification process. I don't get justified, declared positionally righteous, you know, born again, because I made a commitment to God, or I entered into some bilateral contract with God, or I gave Him something, or I repented from my sin, or I surrendered myself to His you know, Lordship. But as a believer, every day these, these things ought to be an aspect of our life as we serve our Lord, the Lord who saved us. Every day we ought to commit ourselves afresh to Him and say, Lord, I, I want to follow You today. I want to honor You today. I want to live a life of faithfulness to You. Uh, we know that the Christian life does involve a bilateral quid pro quo because so many passages in the New Testament talk about rewards that we can store up in heaven. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? So yeah, there's a, there's a give and take in the Christian life. The more we faithfully serve him, the more we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and we'll receive rewards at the Bema. But there's no quid pro quo when it comes to eternal life and getting saved to begin with, because Jesus paid it all, and we have nothing to give, nothing to offer. Uh, eternal salvation or justification is a unilateral, one-directional gift. God is the giver, we are the receiver. But every day we ought to repent of sin. We ought to say, what am I doing that is missing the mark in my life? What, what behavior or thoughts or attitudes in my life are not in conformity to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life? We ought to change our mind about that and, and not do them. And every day we ought to surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus. This is all part of discipleship. But the reason we say these things are not the gospel is because none of these things are a requirement or a prerequisite for becoming a child of God in the first place. And then we spent quite a bit of time the last time we were talking about this, uh, talking about how the gospel is not inviting or acting Jesus, asking Jesus into your life. And I don't want to rehash all this uh, again tonight, but I would just challenge you to, you know, let the, the Bible speak where it speaks. And this notion of, you know, us in getting saved because we ask Jesus into our heart is completely and utterly foreign to Scripture. It's also in, inherently contradictory to the one and only means of getting saved. The Bible could not be more clear that it's by faith alone and f trusting in Jesus and asking Jesus to come into your heart are not the same thing. There's no sense in which they're the same thing, unless you just play, uh, you know, uh, linguistic gym gymnastics or something and just change the meaning. But you know, I can if I ask you over for dinner, or if I if you come to my house and I say, hey, would you like to come in and sit down? Am I expressing faith in you? Not even remotely. It has nothing to do with the situation, right? So I understand that a lot of young people who were told that that's how you get saved might have also somewhere along the journey trusted in Jesus Christ, but it was a completely separate issue. It was not in any sense tied to asking Jesus into your heart. And when you look at a lot of gospel tracks or you listen to a lot of gospel presentations from uh, platforms or podiums, uh, people will say, okay, if, you know, if, you, if you're ready to be saved, then just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, come into my heart. 
You know, we don't have to ask him to do it. He's already there, willing and ready to come. All we have to do is by faith trust him. The gift is already being offered, right? So we don't ask for him to come into our heart. Now, we talked last time about how one of the big problems with this nomenclature, besides the fact that it's never found in Scripture and it only appears on the historic scene on planet Earth about 120 years ago, around the turn of the 20th century, maybe late 1800s, say, say roughly 1880 and forward. Um, besides that fact, one of the big problems with it is it, it, it confuses the result of salvation with the means of salvation. The Bible tells us in the epistles that when by faith we've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, the result of that, one of many, there are at least 33 things that Lewis Berry Schaefer identified happened simultaneously the moment we believe the gospel, but one of those 33 things is that the Lord Jesus takes up residence. He indwells our hearts. That's the result. But the means of Him doing that, how, how that is accomplished, how do, we, how do we get Him to take up residence, is by faith alone in Christ alone, not because we asked Him, Dear Jesus, come into my heart. And then, uh, speaking of praying that prayer, we also talked last time about how the gospel is not praying a prayer. You'll hear people refer all the time to the sinner's prayer. Uh, a funny story, I was speaking, this was several years ago, I was speaking on a Sunday morning at a church, first time I'd ever spoken at this church, Happened to be in Colorado, but not anywhere near here. And I was speaking that morning on the clarity of the gospel. That was going to be my sermon. And during, uh, but right before the sermon, I went back behind the uh, you know baptistry in the the front and prayed with a couple of deacons and you know for the Lord to bless the service and just to prepare our hearts and so forth. And remember, I was going to preach on the clarity of the gospel. And a lady came in, and she said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've just got great news. And she was a Sunday school teacher of a, of a children's Sunday school class. And she said, I just wanted to let you know that this morning, so-and-so, I forget the child's name, let's say Johnny. Johnny prayed the sinner's prayer, and he got saved. And, of course, I bit my tongue because I didn't want to pour water on what the Lord might be doing in that lady's life or in perhaps this child's life. But what I wanted to say and what I did say without saying it through my message that followed, was nobody gets saved because they pray a sinner's prayer. Again, the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. Amen? Not tradition, not culture, not our denomination, not our religion, the Bible. So until someone can show me in Scripture where someone gets eternal life because they prayed a prayer, any prayer, we, we must reject that as a means of obtaining eternal life. You don't get saved by saying the sinner's prayer. Not only that, but because uh, the sinner's prayer has become uh, sort of crystallized and formulaic in a lot of particularly Baptist cultures, what happens is it ends up uh, sort of eclipsing the one true nature, the one true means of getting saved, which is faith alone, and it sort of bypasses it and so you lead people right up to the moment where they recognize they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And then instead of saying, so if you'll trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, they go, so here, pray this prayer. In the same way that they say, so here, invite Jesus into your heart. And both of those cultural nomenclatures are guilty of eclipsing the biblical one true method of salvation, which is faith. Yeah. It's going to say praying the prayer is almost trusting whoever is doing it. Like, for example, the Sunday school teacher would be 
Yeah. Say, some person's like, hmm, I want to get saved. I know. Oh, I know that my dad knows how, and my Sunday school teacher knows how. So. Yeah, and my Sunday school teacher's in authority, and so they must know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the repeat after me part is, um, is, is you have to be really careful with it. Now, I, I think there are contexts in which um, y- y- we, we, when you're sharing the gospel with someone and you're at the point where, and the way I usually bring them to that decision point when I get there is I say, is there anything keeping you from trusting the Lord right now for salvation? Yeah. And then, But every now and then, especially with younger people, they'll say, well, how, how do I do that? And then I'll say, well, how do you trust anything? I mean, you know what trust is, right? Trust means to believe something to be true. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for your sins and that He's the only one who can save you? Are you trusting in Him to forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life? Well, yeah, okay, well, then you're saved. Now, if you'd like to mark the moment, if you'd like to sort of put a punctuation mark after this moment of new life that began the moment you placed your faith in Christ, Let's pray together, you know, and you might say something like this. This isn't saving you, but this is just a way to talk to God. Prayer is just talking to God to say, Dear Lord, thank you for sending your son to die for me. And thank you that uh, he saved me because I've trusted in him and him alone for salvation. And, um, you know, something like that. So I'll do that. I've done that many times. But to make the prayer itself somehow the golden key that unlocks the doors of heaven is confusing. And we want to be careful to be clear and accurate and 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 urgent so this brings up and this is a good time to kind of talk about it another um quick uh sidebar about you know when precisely does somebody get saved right well we know based on the authority of scripture and theologically that that happens the moment faith meets the gospel at that punctiliar moment in time so like if I had a white marker board up here, I could draw this out. But let's say, just picture a timeline, and you're walking through time linearly, and you're lost. You're not saved. And if you were to die, you'd go to hell. But at some point in that journey, on that linear timeline, you come to a day, an hour, a minute, a moment, where you've heard the gospel, and you, of your own free will, choose to believe in the the message of the Bible that if you'll trust in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment, instantaneously, you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Jesus said that. So uh, at that point, we're a new creation. Old things have passed away. We've become born again. We're in the family of God. We're adopted. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And all those 33 things happen instantly at that moment. And from that moment, from that punctiliar split second forward our lives are lived as a believer and and we may you know if i if you get saved young like i got saved when i was six years old so i might end up if the lord tarries is coming living for 80 or 90 years as a believer and someday if you were to look back on my life you'd say the first six years of it he was not saved but the final 80 years of it he wasn't that kind of a thing so that if you think of it on a timeline there is a point at which before that, you're unsaved, and after that, you're saved. And what makes the difference is your faith, right? Now, having said that, I am quite sure that every believer, when we get to heaven, is going to be interested to note that that moment 
is probably not exactly at the moment that we marked the moment. It may not be at that exact moment we walked an aisle or that exact moment when we said a prayer or that exact moment when we you know, knelt with our mom or dad if you were raised in a Christian family. Because since salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, it's quite likely that before we got to that point, we had already come to the point of faith. We had already expressed faith. In other words, when my dad came into my bedroom that night after a Sunday night service, when I was really under conviction of the Holy Spirit, realized I was a sinner and on the road to hell, and I didn't want to spend eternity in hell, uh, and I had heard the gospel again and again, and I heard it particularly clearly that night. The Holy Spirit just really convicted me. And by the time he's asking me, well, son, do you trust in Jesus Christ to, to save you? Are you trusting in him? I had probably already trusted him, right? I didn't need him to ask me that question. It's a faith, as we've talked a lot about a few weeks ago in the head-heart discussion, is by definition an intellectual uh, enterprise. You don't believe the gospel with your foot or your elbow. You believe the gospel with your mind, right? And you have to understand it to believe it. And so I had probably already come to that point. So I think that it can be helpful uh, and is certainly nothing wrong with marking the moment, maybe putting a date in your Bible or, or uh, you know, marking it on a calendar or, you know, whatever you might do to, to just as a reminder, that, hey, this is this is when I've trusted Christ. But I'm just saying that it's not like, you know, big bells and whistles go off the minute that punctiliar moment in time happens. Uh, we It does happen at a moment in time when faith meets the gospel, and we tend to acknowledge it in approximately the same time. But I wouldn't be surprised if um, there's a difference in time. Uh, and for some people, it could be quite a while. Um, you know, for example, uh, and I got a question about this uh, today. A lady called the 1-800 number for Not By Works and was asking about some teachers, and, and, she, and I get this question a ton. She, these were teachers that were preaching a false gospel, and she said, do you think they're saved? And I gave her the same answer I always give. I said, well, I would assume they are. I mean, as much as they've studied the Word and spent a lifetime saturating themselves with the Word of God, it would be stunning to me if at some point in their journey they did not come to understand and believe the pure gospel. But what I can tell you is what they're teaching now is not the pure gospel. And nobody can be saved by believing what they're teaching right now. But as to whether or not they're saved, I would assume they are. See, believers, Christians, can teach a false gospel. Christians can be wrong doctrinally. Amen? Just because you're wrong doctrinally doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. Now, it, you might also not be saved, and there are plenty of cults and heresies and false teachers out there who've never believed the gospel and at the same time are uh, promulgating a false teaching on any number of subjects. But don't assume that because someone's doctrine is wrong, they themselves have never been saved. We, we don't know that, that maybe at some point they did believe uh, the gospel. So similarly, I would say that there are people that maybe sit under a false teacher. Uh, and I, you know, I wouldn't say this in a conference or in a Sunday sermon, but in a small group Wednesday night Bible study where we're digging deeper, 
I don't mind mentioning names. If you're sitting under John Piper or John MacArthur or any number of other Reformed theologians who are promoting a false gospel, according to which you must surrender your life, promise to be good, make a pledge or commitment to Christ, and so turn from all your sins, forsake all your sins. If you're sitting under someone who's teaching that, and you did whatever that end of the contract they said was necessary to get saved, I wouldn't be surprised that after that, at somewhere on your journey, as you're studying the Word of God or listening to other Bible teachers, um, you came to understand the clear and simple and pure gospel and got saved, right? So you may get to heaven one day and say, man, when I was at you know MacArthur's church one day and I felt I needed a Savior, and he said, all I got to do is promise to follow him and commit my life to him and surrender my all and forsake all unrighteousness, which is MacArthur's call to salvation. Uh, and I did that. I made a firm commitment. And you might find out that it wasn't for three years later that you got saved, actually. Because as you began to study the Word of God, the Spirit of God began to convict you and recognize, and you came to realize what grace is all about. That grace is free. That you didn't bring anything to the table. You didn't have to keep your end of the bargain. You simply received the free gift fully paid for by the blood of Christ. So I think I just wanted to kind of mention that, that you know, there's a difference between what happens theologically and supernaturally in our lives when we pass from death to life spiritually and on earth how we might mark that moment. And that's why we want to, that's why we're going through this series that it's not about signing a card or praying a prayer or going through catechism or being baptized or any of these other things. It's about faith, faith alone in Christ alone. So any, any questions or thoughts about that or, or follow up or anything? All right. Well, let's um, let's move on then to the number eight, which is I just mentioned. The gospel is not about forsaking your old ways. Um, and in fact, you can't forsake your old ways until you've got the new nature to begin with, right? You don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath, and you don't clean the fish until you catch them, right? And all those old uh, analogies. Um, and yet, some people, and I've mentioned MacArthur a lot, I'm not picking on MacArthur tonight, but, uh, but I guess I am in a way in terms of the content of his gospel. He is very clear that in order to get to heaven, you've got to forsake all unrighteousness, quote, unquote. Um, so, uh, and then they'll quote passages like 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's absolutely true, spiritually speaking. But it is both biblically clear and self-evident that all things have not become new outwardly, right? You don't act perfect every day. And neither do Reformed theologians or Calvinists, if they're honest. But somehow in their mind, they've categorized sins so that they will acknowledge, yes, I still sin, but I'm not a homosexual, or I'm not this, or I'm not doing drugs, or I'm not a drunkard. Or, and they, they, they categorize all these big sins as somehow disqualifying someone from being a Christian, and yet they are quite content to continue living out their Christian life, suffering from pride, jealousy, covetousness, lust, whatever the hidden sins of the heart are, and yet that's okay somehow. That doesn't disqualify them from really being saved. It doesn't make their faith spurious, but boy, anybody who's committing the big sins, their faith is spurious. They couldn't possibly be saved. So there's a, there's a real incipient ugly pride, I believe, that undergirds Calvinist teaching. 
that is so prone to look at others and hastily conclude they're not saved if they're struggling with sin, and yet be quite content to say, you know, they're saved. I remember talking to a gentleman one time um, about assurance, and uh, he, I said, uh, do, you know, do, do you know the future? He said, of course not. I said, I didn't think you did, but I just thought I'd ask, because you seem confident that you, that you have eternal life. And he said, well, of course I, I am confident. And I said, well, but you also believe that if you were to deny the Lord, that would prove you never really were saved, right? Well, that's right. That's the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. So you don't know the future. And if you were to deny the Lord, it would prove you were never saved. How can you be sure that sometime in the future, you might yourself not deny the Lord? He said, well, I just know I won't. I would never do that. And I said, you know how many people have said that? How many times, uh, Pete, you know, Peter, not me, Lord, no, Lord, forbid it, Lord, me, never, Lord. And then he turns around and three times denies the Lord and cursed him. You know how many Christians have resolutely said, I'll, I'll follow you to the end. And then when life gets rough, they, they deny the Lord. So, uh, so that's what we mean when we say there's no, no possibility of assurance if you're basing your assurance on your ability to persevere in good works, uh, or you're basing your assurance effectively on your own uh, behavior. So certainly we are not saved because we did a U-turn or forsake, you know, forsook our old ways. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, which is the means by which we receive the free gift. And then guess what? As we grow and mature in that new nature that happens instantly, there are going to be some things we forsake. A normal, natural, healthy response for a, a new believer is to forsake the old man. Why do you think Paul in Romans 6 through 8 and in Ephesians and in Colossians repeatedly contrasts the old and new man's? The old and new man. Because when we get saved, we still have that old man. And he's going to do that tug of war. Remember what he said in Galatians 5.16, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit lusts against the flesh. The two are contrary to one another. And so repeatedly, Paul exhorts us to walk in the new man that we've put on as a believer and not cater to that old man. He wouldn't have to command that if it were guaranteed, right? If we were automatically going to only do righteous things. So as a believer... We ought to wake up every day and look more and more like the new nature. Look more and more like the new man, so to speak. Uh, and some believers do, some don't. And also there's seasonal aspects to that. You know, we've all known believers, maybe you've experienced this in your own life, I know I have, where you have little seasons where for whatever reason you're getting away from the Lord. Maybe some crisis has happened, some tragedy Whatever it might be, you develop a root of bitterness, you begin to shake your fist at heaven, and you, you get out of the Word of God, and you're not spending time with other believers, and not spending time in church, and so first thing you know, you're kind of looking like the old guy, not the new guy. And so the Spirit of God will discipline us and draw us back to Him, and hopefully um, we'll kind of correct that and get back into right fellowship with Him and start to reflect the new nature more than the old nature. but um, So forsaking your old ways, kind of like some of the others we talked about a moment ago, is part of the discipleship process, the sanctification process for believers, but it in no way is a requirement for eternal life. 
All right, so now let's move on to Romans 10. Some people say that the gospel requires a public confession. So in Romans 10, let's, let's have that open so I can kind of walk through the passage here. We read, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, at first pass, it sort of sounds like there's two conditions for salvation, right? Um, but let's just let the text say what the text says. Um, because he goes on to say in the next verse, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the confession, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So if you go back to verse 9, he's talking here about how a person can be saved. Okay, So we need to look at the context because we've talked about this a lot in this Wednesday night's time. What does the word saved mean, literally? What's the lexical definition of saved? Anybody remember? To rescue or deliver. deliver. Very good. To rescue or deliver. And it's used 108 times in the New Testament Greek. 58% of the time, it is speaking of being delivered or rescued from something physical or earthly or temporal. So the thing that you need to get firm in, our, in, in your mind, and all of us do, is that the word saved does not always have anything to do with heaven or hell. Context determines the meaning. And I've given you several examples of this. Uh, you know, Paul talks about when he's on the ship on the, that ultimately was shipwrecked on Malta. He said, when all hope that we would be saved was lost, or, you know, we had to throw some things overboard in order to be saved. And uh, the disciples earlier on in Jesus' ministry, when the storm on the Sea of Galilee arose, they said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Lots of examples. In fact, a lot of times in our English Bibles, the word save is translated healed because it means physical deliverance from sickness or harm. So if you look at the context here, we first see this word saved up in verse 1. When Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, delivered. Now again, there's nothing in the context that would indicate he's talking about individual eternal salvation, heaven, hell. Matter of fact, chapters 9 through 11, the whole broader context of that section of the letter, are all about national Israel. He begins in uh, chapter 9 by uh, talking about, you know, is there a future for Israel? Has God forsaken Israel entirely? What about Israel? You know, they rejected the Messiah, so has God done with them? And the whole section, chapters 9 through 11, comes to a climax at the end of chapter 11 when he reminds his readers, the uh, Christians in Rome, that in fact, Someday, in verse 26, all Israel, the nation, will be delivered when the deliverer comes out of Zion and they are ushered into the kingdom. So salvation here is national and is talking about the nation of Israel. Then he goes on uh, in chapter 10 to talk about how in order for Israel to experience this national deliverance, they must first individually believe the gospel. And he says, it's with the heart that you believe and are declared righteous. Verse 10, we just looked at it. And that's the testimony of Scripture. Again, one of the 160 plus verses that says we are justified 
eternally saved, declared righteous by faith. With the heart you believe and you're declared righteous. But then he's now switching back to the nation of Israel. He says, and then with the mouth, confession is made unto deliverance. And then he's going to make it very clear in verse 11 when he quotes Joel 2, which is a second coming passage. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Actually, verse 13. So you go back and look at the Joel 2 passage. It's talking about national Israel being delivered into their long-awaited messianic kingdom. So he, he says in verse 14, How can they, they, the nation of Israel, call on him in whom they have not believed? See, personal faith leads to justification and eternal salvation. National confession leads to getting into the kingdom. What did Jesus say in Matthew 23 when he rejected the national leaders of Israel? Just two days before he was betrayed. Actually, one night before he was betrayed. He said to them, You will not see me again until you call out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting that Messianic Psalm 118. And so, Paul, Jesus, and the Old Testament prophets all testify to the same thing. That at the first advent of Christ, the nation cried out, Crucify him, crucify him, and crowned him with thorns. At the second advent of Christ, they will cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then according to Matthew 24, 31, the angels will supernaturally regather believing Israel, because they can't call on him in whom they have not believed, into the land from the four corners of the earth, and the kingdom will begin. So Israel today is not being regathered in the land, according to biblical prophecy, because they haven't believed the gospel. They're there in unbelief. But someday, during the tribulation, individual Jews will hear and believe the gospel and be declared righteous with the heart one believes and is righteous. And then, when Christ comes back, they will be able to call on the name of the Lord, confessing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you who comes in the name of the Lord, and be delivered into the kingdom. So, I hope that makes sense. It may take you some time to work through the text and kind of digest it. But if you just kind of look at the context, he's not giving here two conditions for eternal life in the place of an individual. Um, in fact, he even switches. With the heart, one believes unto, unto righteousness, and then with the mouth, confession is made, passive tense, unto salvation. Because he's already talked about how he, national deliverance is what the context is. All his prayer for the nation of Israel is that they be delivered into the kingdom. By the end of chapter 11, they're going to be delivered into the kingdom. He quotes Joel 2.28, or Joel 2.32 rather, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered into the kingdom. And uh, also Isaiah 28.16, which is in the context of the regathering of believing Jews into the land when he says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So Romans 10.10 has been grossly misunderstood and misused. Um, a lot of people say, you know, things like, well, well, Jesus went to the cross for you. you got to be willing to get out of that pew and come down this aisle and publicly confess Him or you can't be saved. And I've heard that many times. Um, and, and they'll use this verse as a proof text for that. Not what this is saying at all. It's saying that same consistent testimony of Scripture cover to cover that faith, belief, is what gets you righteous. But then he's talking about Israel. Uh, in the context, and he says, and then with the mouth confession is made unto 
salvation meaning deliverance into the kingdom. So any any uh, questions about that? Anybody studied this before or heard this before? Or is this new to any of you? So what we want to emphasize here is that public confession is nowhere mentioned as a requirement for individual justification. For the one thing, if it were, then mute people couldn't be saved, right? Um, so, or neither could people on a desert island, right? You know, so you, you've got to, if you need a public confession to get into heaven, then we have, have an issue. Uh, but that's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying the nation of Israel will publicly cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they will be saved, that is, delivered into the kingdom. Yeah. And, and another uh, point would be that the Bible can't contradict itself. And it says, whoever here, and right. it says, not everyone who calls right. the Lord. Yeah, that's right. So you, you know, you'd, have a, you'd have an issue there. So a lot of people who similarly recognize that public confession is not a requirement to get to heaven, when they get to this verse, they'll, they'll try to twist it and say, well, it, conf confession is just a synonym for belief. But that's not what he's saying. It has nothing to do with the context. It breaks up the flow of thought. Plus, he doesn't just say confession, which if it were just confession, you could argue that the word confess is homo legeo, homo same legeo, to say, means to say the same thing as or to agree with. But he doesn't say just, he says with the mouth. He's talking here about, you know, words and audible words. And, 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 and it makes sense because he quotes Joel who says Israel will call on the name of the Lord. That's again, kaleo, to speak out. So, uh, so I, I mean, I, I agree with those who say public confession is not required, but I disagree with them saying that, oh, this is just a synonymous way to talk about faith. That's, that's bad hermeneutics. Yeah, back here and then up here. So this is the Tony Evans study Bible, it's the Christian Standard Version? Yeah. Yeah, he's wrong. Uh, and I know Tony, but he's wrong. He believes believers can be under the wrath of God. They absolutely cannot be under the wrath of God. There's no, the wrath of God is only for unbelievers. Look at John 3.36. Uh, by the way, for the tape, because I, I forgot to repeat the question. The question was reading uh, some notes in a Tony Evans study Bible. He says that, uh, that in that passage that Paul was teaching that when a person believes the gospel, they are declared righteous but then they must publicly confess uh, in order to be delivered from the temporal wrath of God, right? What does that mean, the temporal wrath of, he said the temporal wrath of history? I think he's just, I, I think he means in their history on earth, right? So Tony is, uh, and, there, and he's not alone. There are some other folks that I think get this way wrong, and it's a big deal, suggests that there's two kinds of wrath. There's eternal wrath and temporal wrath. But the Bible makes no distinction. And if you look at John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And every time you see wrath, it's the Greek word orge. It's where we get the English word orgy. And it just speaks of just absolute unscathed wrath. 
um, or, or I mean scathing wrath, uh, it's always in the context of unbelievers. Because once we believe the gospel, we're now a child of God. And there's no punishment for believers. In fact, I've got a, a chart at the back back there on the distinction between punishment and discipline that walks you through how punishment, the wrath of God, is only for unbelievers. And it, it can be temporal. That much is true, but it, not for believers. We see the temporal wrath of God in places like Noah with the flood against all unbelievers who perished in the flood. 100% of them were unbelievers. The only believers were the eight people on the ark. Uh, we see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the only people that were saved were Lot. You know, We see sometimes that the sinfulness of unbelievers reaching a tipping point so that the wrath of God flows from heaven in a temporal sense. Now, ultimately, the final display of God's wrath will not come until the day of wrath, the tribulation period, which is called the overflowing scourge and the great day of the Lord's wrath by Zephaniah the prophet. And that's that seven-year period. And again, it's going to be poured out on unbelievers. But uh, a believer will never face the wrath of God. So I, I disagree theologically with what uh, Tony is saying there, but I also disagree contextually. I mean, it, that's not what the passage is saying. He's reading into it and ignoring verse 1, verse 12, verse 14, and all the other passages that talk about national Israel and their calling on the name or confessing the Lord in order to be delivered into the kingdom. So, uh, I mean, he's a great guy. I love Tony Evans. I actually worked with him when I was uh, dean of a school. We invited him to be our commencement speaker, so I got to spend quite a bit of time with him. And, you know, he's, uh, he's a lot smarter than I am, but he's not right on that for sure. Yeah. I was just applying, wanting to apply the, the things that we learned last week about manuscripts because uh, this version says that it, uh, it's my desire and my heart and my prayer to God uh, for them is for their salvation. And then it says some late, later manuscripts say Israel. There you um, go, yeah. So, so is that, so what they took, or what some take into consideration is there's the two kinds, right? One is with the majority, mm -hmm. and then one, the other one was, the, which is latest, the critical right? text, which was earlier. Earlier, yeah. Okay, and we and we we tend to think that it's it's more important that it's the majority because, um, like for example, the dead or this is it the, the one that was found later was probably left untouched because it was faulty, right? Right. Yeah, and so and and that's my view, and I would say don't just take my word for it, it's something you might want to study, because a lot of smart people hold to the critical text theory. I just disagree. Uh, but uh, let me clarify what Jeff was saying. In Romans uh, 10, verse 1, there's a textual variant. Remember how we talked about last week how we don't have the original document of Romans, what's called the autograph. We don't have the autograph of Romans in a nice sealed case, perfectly climate controlled. We have scribal copies of Romans. And if you gather up all the scribal copies of what we now call Romans 10.1, that first verse, or let's just say the first sentence, which we call the first verse, there's a scribal uh, variant. Now, I'm reading from the New King James, which is based on the majority text, and it says, My, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. And if you look at the note, it says... The NU, remember what we said last week? NU stands for the critical text, the Nestle Alon UBS text. Omit, or let's see, uh, reads them. It puts the pronoun there. 
So in other words, when we look at all the manuscripts of Romans 10.1, there's one difference. Some of them say that my prayer for uh, to God for Israel. Some of them say my prayer to God for them. And, and so either way, even though I think Israel is probably the original because most of the manuscripts say Israel, it either means that the original text said them, and very early on in church history, as scribes were copying it, they understood that it meant Israel, so they inadvertently changed it to Israel, which would be evidence of our view. Or it meant Israel, and then later scribes just smoothed it out because clearly in chapters 9 through 11, all of these paragraphs are all talking about Israel, so they just used a pronoun in, in place of the name of Israel. Because what does he say? Remember, there were no chapter divisions. What does he say right before that? Um, what shall we say then, that Gentile, verse 30, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel, so if you, have, if you go with the pronoun of them in 10 verse 1, you only have to go back three verses to see the antecedent of them is Israel. Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law. Why? Because they, Israel, did not seek it by faith, but by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, and then he quotes here again Isaiah, Behold, I lay in, a, uh, in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So, uh, ultimately, Israel, like they did on the in the wilderness, and that they that they when like they did in the first advent, failed to trust in in God. It was unbelief that led them to crucify the Savior. Uh, so, yeah, that's a very good observation, good point uh, there. But yeah, you need to keep in mind that chapters nine through eleven. In fact, I wouldn't even attempt to understand chapters, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 without reading chapters 9 to 11 10 times because it's all about Israel. What about the nation of Israel? Has God forsaken them? Has He abandoned them? Has he, his, are His promises with them defunct? And it very loudly and profoundly concludes at the end of chapter 11 with the parable of the olive tree, or not the parable, but the illustration of the olive tree. And he says, no, the deliverer is going to come back someday and Israel will get her kingdom as promised. But before they do, they must first believe the gospel. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How can they believe on him and how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? So uh, pretty clear, I think, when you just take the time to look at it. I think what confuses us is this passage has been used for years as part of the Roman road of sal Roman roadmap of salvation. Anybody ever learn that? I learned it at a very young age at Word of Life Bible Camp in Scroon Lake, New York. In fact, it was no less than Jack Wurtzen himself. I tell this story. I don't remember if I tell the story, but I reference my experience at Word of Life in the preface to Weekly Words of Life, my devotional book. But um, he happened to fill in that day for the college student that was leading my little small group for a week of camp when I was in the seventh grade. And it happened to be the day they were teaching us the Roman road. I still have the Bible where I you know, wrote down the verses, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 10.9, 10 and 13, and then 1 John 5.13. Um, so, uh, but I, I don't use this passage anymore as part of a showing the plan of salvation, even though it clearly does speak of individual salvation with the heart one believes and is declared righteous. That's individual eternal salvation. But in the context, he's only talking about Jews there. And there are so many other passages that are you know, don't confuse the issue by adding this notion of national salvation to the equation. So I just choose to, you know, pick a different verse. But most people, uh, 
are when you're sharing the gospel, especially in public settings at revivals or um, conferences or so forth, you're you're wanting some type of public uh, manifestation. You're wanting a feather in your cap. You know, you're wanting to be able to say, "Oh, we had 20 people sign commitment cards today, and we had 20 people come forward." You know, I remember uh, as a uh, High school senior, my church where I grew up in Houston for all of my high school time anyway, was a large church and they would have these big revivals and and they had a big fire and brimstone revivalist come in and the morning service, it started on a Sunday and it went all week and the morning service, of course, he, you know, the aisles were flooded with people coming forward to get saved and and so then that afternoon, Myself and several of the young people met with the youth pastor up at the church to help set up for an after-church pizza party. And this uh, this uh, evangelist, and he's with the Lord now, but he you have to just picture the quintessential Southern Baptist, white bright white suit, flaming red tie with the pocket red red uh, handkerchief coming out of the pocket, slicked back hair. He comes marching in as we're about an hour before the evening service, and he says, I want some of you kids to come down here in the front. We need to move these first two rows of chairs. We had a big 1,200-seat auditorium that had chairs in it, and it doubled as a gymnasium, and we would often take the chairs down for sports leagues. But anyway, I want some of you kids to come down here. We need to clear out the first two rows of these chairs. There were 50 people that went to hell this morning because there was no room for them at the altar. That's what he said. And uh, I w- wasn't theologically sound at the time, and I didn't know enough to know that that wasn't true. But, um, you know, people don't need to come to the altar to get to heaven. And um, nothing wrong with altar calls, don't get me wrong. If they're done right and they preach a clear gospel, it's a good way to give people the opportunity to share what they've already done. But f- salvation is by faith alone, not by walking an aisle or coming forward or responding to an altar call. Anything else tonight as we wrap up? Make sense about Romans 10? Yeah. Well, I think that maybe I should just ask you this question. No, no, go ahead. Because it's a little bit of a different, and I don't want you to think that I wasn't listening a long time ago when I know we've talked about this, but um, back to Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. And then going on and talking about for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So, um, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and those, these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So, in... God, God knows who's going to believe in him before we're born. He knows because he knows everything. Correct. Right? So the comment... I just get so hung up on that, those whom he predestined. Yeah, so let me repeat kind of where we're at so that because pe- some people listen to this on a podcast and some people watch the video. If you're watching the video, you can tell I'm kind of hearing and you can probably hear you faintly, but on the podcast, it might sound like silence. So the question is basically about predestination, calling, Romans 8, 28 down to verse 30. And so, uh, and, and you talked about his foreknowledge. So yes, God knows everything, but his election and predestination are not based on foreknowledge. That's a misunderstanding, Okay. Because uh, it sounds good, and, and for a lot of people, it sort of makes sense. 
that it, in some ways it softens God's election if you say, well, he just looked ahead and saw, oh, Fred's going to believe the gospel, so I'll choose him. The problem with that is, who wrote the book? If God's reading ahead in the book of history, who wrote it, right? God created time, space, and matter ex nihilo, out of nothing. The only eternally existing thing is the eternal Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing for God to read unless he first created it. So, uh, so foreknowledge, election, predestination, they're all three different things. They're, they correlate, but they're not the same thing. So election, which this passage does not talk about, we believe is biblical based on Ephesians 1 and, and several other passages. Um, my problem with Calvinism is not election. I was just talking to someone about this Sunday. I, I, don't ha I do not have a problem with election. The Bible teaches election. You can't get around it. Here's the problem with Calvinism. They don't believe in free will. They don't believe you have a choice to believe or reject the gospel. I believe that too. Why? Because the Bible teaches that too. How can God elect before the foundation of the world those who will be saved, and yet we have a free choice to either believe or not believe? They're contradictory, right? Yeah, they sure are. You know why I believe it? Because the Bible teaches it. It's called a biblical antinomy. Antinomy meaning anti-against uh, namas law. So an antinomy is something that is contrary to the law or logic. So we believe a lot of antinomies in Scripture. We believe the Trinity, three but one. We believe the virgin birth, a virgin yet gave birth. We believe the hypostatic union, 100% God, yet Christ is 100% man. So we believe a lot of antinomies, not because they're logical. By definition, antinomy is not logical, but because the Bible teaches them. So Tosher says about this very topic, Lord, thou knowest. That's it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. We do want to know. So here's the thing. If you overplay God's sovereignty, you'll end up like a Calvinist and make man completely passive. We're just a bunch of robots who have no choice in the matter. All of a sudden, we believe the gospel. We didn't mean to. We didn't even try to. We didn't even want to. We just did because God forced us to. We didn't choose to do it. You couldn't reject the gospel if you're elect, according to Calvinism, and you couldn't believe the gospel if you're not. So if you overplay that, you make man completely impotent. And there is one condition, the Bible says again and again, we have to do to be saved, believe. If you overplay free will, you become like an Arminian, and you make God impotent. And, and we are saving ourselves. We're, we're being good enough, and our good works are commending us to God. And Jesus Christ was just an example, right? So we don't want you know, to overplay either. We want a healthy biblical tension between sovereignty and free will, election and free choice, and, and, and the Bible teaches both. So I, I'm a theological you know, electionist, I believe it, I put it on the shelf, because we're not all born with an E on our head, and we don't have any idea who's elect, right? So I believe, based on the authority of Scripture, that of 7.5 billion people in the world, any one of them could be saved. I understand that when it's all said and done, and time shall be no more, and we're all looking back in eternity down on what used to be an earth and a universe and a time, space, and matter, that only the elect will be there. I get it. But that's irrelevant because I'm not there. I'm here. I'm in this world where we live. And where we live, anyone, whosoever will, may come. Anyone can believe the gospel. 
And there's no, just absolutely no distinction anywhere in Scripture between the elect and the non-elect in their unregenerate state. We don't see it. Anytime the Bible uses elect, it's in reference to someone who's already believed the gospel. So we're not, we're not supposed to think of everyone universally in terms of an elect or non-elect person. That's a false category, right? So, uh, so that's election. And then, and then foreknowledge is just that, yes, God knows everything. He, he knows it because not only did he read ahead and can he, he knows all things outside of time. So God exists in the eternal state of now, right? We, you know, think of past, present, future. So the older we get, we forget things, right? Forget the past. Oh, I can't remember that or this or that. God doesn't have that problem because he's eternally omniscient. He knows all things at all times equally well. Uh, so, but, uh, but he's also the author of the book, right? So, um, you know, he, he, so foreknowledge is not a, somehow a, a description of or a means of explaining God's election. They're completely separate. He elected and he also read ahead. He wrote the book and he also read the book, right? He, he knows what's going to happen in the final chapter. Um, and then predestination is uniquely related to the church, the bride of Christ. And, and that's who Paul is talking about here when he says to be predestined to conform to the image of his son, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. See, um, Old Testament saints are not in Christ. Tribulation saints will not be in Christ. That's a unique Pauline term that refers to the bride of Christ, the church. It's one of the unique blessings of the church. This Sunday in our series on Sunday mornings through Hebrews, I'm talking about um, the value of the local church. And I, I've got it all ready. I've been working on it all week. I've put the finishing touches on it last night. Um, and I'm going to once again review the value and the purpose of the church. And one of those things is that we are a, call, we are a people of his name. You know, we, are, we are Christians. You know, Jews were not called Yahwehites. <laughs> Right? They were called Jews. We're called Christians. We bear the very name of Christ, and we are predestined to conform uh, to His image. So, and then, verse 30, those people that are Christians that are predestined to be conformed to His image, He called. Absolutely. Nobody comes to the Lord unless the Spirit of Christ draws Him. Right? So, you, it's, if you're a believer, at some point, the, the call... The, the resistible call, I might add. Calvinists say it was irresistible. You had no choice. Like he dragged you, you know, to faith. Uh, that's not the biblical pr pr picture. Um, and I get into this in my Calvinism series, if you're interested. What is Calvinism and is it biblical? But he called us. Once he called us, we believe the gospel. Then he justified us. And then having justified us, he also, past tense, glorified us. We Our home is as good as secure in heaven already. So does that makes sense. I know that I was throwing a lot at you, but does that help at all? Or? Yeah, I'm working through it. Working through it, exactly. And that's all you can do. Don't just take my word for it, but just you know, do a word study on each of those words and recognize that they each have a little different nuance. Because I think about John 3.16, if God died for Jesus, Jesus died for the world, God sent His only begotten Son, whoever believes in Him. Right. So that Those of the present age, yes, because it's he's just in this passage predestination is applying just to 
believers of the church age, right? Abraham was not predestined to conform to the image of Christ. In other words, neither was Moses or David. But the church, the body of Christ, is predestined to conform to the image of Christ. And Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, meaning the church at this point. But now, John 3.16 is talking about the whole world, but it doesn't talk about predestination. So now Calvinists say, John 3.16 says he died for the world of the elect, not the whole world. And they do the same thing with 1 John 2, too, when, they, when John says he himself is the propitiation. By the way, that means satisfaction of God's wrath. That's one of the reasons why we know believers are not under the wrath of God, because that wrath has been satisfied. So how can a believer go back and be put under God's wrath when that wrath has been propitiated, right? So, but he says he himself is the propitiation, 1 John 2, 2, for our sins, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Absolutely. There, she said there will be some that he died for who are not going to believe in him and will go to hell. Absolutely. The atoning work of Christ did not save us. It made it possible for us to be saved. How do we get saved eternally? By faith. Exactly. Faith, 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 faith. Faith alone. So, the, the, but Calvinists teach the atonement is what actually procured our salvation. And uh, we might actually go through this after I finish this series. It might be instructive to go through what they say in their own writings and why the Bible doesn't teach that. But we have an example of someone who, for whom Jesus purchased redemption and ends up in hell. Look at Second uh, Peter real quick, and then we'll close. I know it's late. Second uh, Peter. Where, is that in the New Testament, Jeffrey? <laughs> I'm in trouble here. Second Peter chapter two. Here we go. Second Peter chapter two, verse one. I'm going to be speaking on this chapter in October in Duluth, Minnesota, at the conference there. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there were false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. That's the atoning work of Christ. He purchased us with His blood, right? Now, if that's all we had, you might say, well, these were believers who just were, got into false doctrines and became false teachers, which believers do do. And we have other examples of Scripture of a believer actually becoming a false teacher. But notice as you go through all of this, uh, what ends up happening to these false prophets. Verse 17, these are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. <laughs> that is, could not be more clear. There's no ambiguity there. That's talking about hell. Blackness of darkness forever. So here you've got people who the Lord bought ending up in hell. Why? Because they never believe the gospel. Okay, so can we just back up one last thing? And then yeah. We can say yeah. But if, if he died, he died for everyone. Correct. But he didn't call everyone. No, he's calling everyone. Yep. Okay. So, but notice verse 30, Romans 8.30 does not say uh, everyone, it, it, everyone was called. It doesn't say everyone who was called was justified. It says those who were called were justified. You have to be called to be justified, in other words. 
But being called doesn't guarantee you're going to be justified. Why? Because you can reject the Holy Spirit. It's a universal call. The Bible ends with a reiteration of it. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. Now that's a, not a bona fide offer if in fact what it means is if you're elect, you get to have some water. It doesn't mean that. So, you know, it's... That thing that me what's that? That elect thing me Yeah. Just remember that election and free will will never make sense this side of glory. Okay. Romans 11, by the way, Romans 9 through 11, Calvinists love that passage, not... They miss the whole point that it's about Israel, but it talks a lot about national election in chapter 9 and Israel's election. It goes back to Jacob and Esau and all that. And, uh, you know, uh, shall the potter, uh, shall the pot say to the, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the, the exact words, but the, the, shall the pot, clay pot say to the one who made it, you know, why did you make me like this? You know, right? So, uh when he, after going through all of that and explaining, look, I'm God, I can choose who I want nationally, he then at the end of chapter 11 says, for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? Because, you know, his ways are beyond our understanding. Amen. So we just, we have to accept it on faith, but not obsess about it. I mean, I'm, I, I, every now and then I think in terms of, boy, I'm so glad I'm elect. Praise God for that. But, Calvinists like wear it like a badge of honor and they and someone who's not responding to the gospel they're very quick and I've had conversations about it with them uh, this is not a stereotype this is based on 32 years of ministry they'll say well they must not be elect because they're not believing the gospel and I just want to punch them and say how do you know how do you not in climbing inside their heart we have no idea this side of glory who's elect and who's not so as you enter heaven, it will say, whosoever will may come. When you get in and you turn around and look over the door, it's going to say, welcome elect. Now, until that moment, we will have no idea who's elect. None. And we need to assume that anyone can be saved, even the most vile person, if they'll simply trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So. Thank you so much. Hey, you bet. Thank you guys, and we'll see you. Uh... Oh, let me mention...